This podcast is presented by Solving Kids Cancer, dedicated to improving survival through novel clinical studies. To learn more about funding opportunities, visit our website at solvingkidscancer.org and click Apply for Grant. This Week in Pediatric Oncology, the podcast about new advances for childhood cancer. Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode number 62, recorded on March 3rd, 2017. I'm your host, Tim Craig from Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio, affiliated with The Ohio State University. And I'm here along with a co-host, Robin Dennis. Welcome, Robin. Thank you. Good to have you back. Great. And today we have a special guest from Toronto, and that's Dr. Yuri Taburi. Mm-hmm. Welcome. It's great to have you here. You you've been a visitor here for a few days and meeting with a lot of people and and getting a tour and uh, giving us a couple talks. You did grand rounds yesterday and you are a staff physician at the hospital for sick kids in in Toronto. You're also a senior scientist in the genetics and genome biology section of the research institute. Principal investigator there in the Arthur and Sonia Labatt brain tumor research center did i get all that right absolutely uh, the internet is a terrific thing <laughs> um, and an associate professor in the institute for medical sciences so it's a real pleasure to have you here with us to to talk science thanks for being here it's my pleasure and thanks for having me so can you tell us how you got to where you're at like where did you do your training and, and what kind of things might have inspired you along the way to become a pediatric brain tumor doctor okay so i'll start very young age uh, i was actually a farmer and I used to work with cows all my life, and I knew what I want to be. I want to be a vet. That's what I knew I want to be. So when I uh, was my time to go to uh, higher school, uh, there's I lived in Israel. There's no direct way to become a vet. You have to do something before that. And the fastest way is to start medical school, and after three years to go to become a vet. So that was the plan, and it held off for one year, and then I fell in love with human beings, as you know, and... I became a physician and I always knew I want to do pediatrics and oncology came very fast within that route of pediatrics. And as we all hear on pediatric oncologists, I'm sure you understand the magnitude of that profession. I would say it's not a profession, it's sort of a way of life. Consumes you from early in the morning until you go to sleep. So we are blessed and um, that's why I became what I am. And the beauty is that I was mentored by very good mentors and they told me very early that even within pediatric hematology oncology, you probably want to find a niche or an area that you can be, um, you can matter. And what happened is that at that time, which is very interesting because that was not a long time ago, but the area that nobody knew anything about was pediatric brain tumors and was thought to be like an area that nobody wanted to go to. So my mentor told me, that's a good niche to be in. So I found uh, one of the leading uh, places in the world at Toronto, and I joined the uh, Brain Tumor Research Center and the Cancer Genetics Program with some amazing mentors, uh, such as uh, Dr. David Malkin, Dr. Eric Buffet, and Dr. Jim Ratka there. And from then, it was sort of a dream come true, and we can do things together that really matters. What, so what, what stage of your career was that, that you moved to Toronto? It's a good point. So actually, I finished all my residency fellowship in Hemong, and at that time, I knew that that's not enough because if you really want to know more about uh, molecular biology and uh, and um, brain tumors, you have to go to a center that has excellence in that. And it, it's either in Europe or in the states, and 
I chose Toronto just because it's none of these. <laughs> <laughs> so you became a Canadian? I Are you a citizen? A yeah. I became a Canadian and also a proud Canadian. <laughs> I think it's a beautiful country with beautiful people. Well, you're you're continuing to perpetuate my impression of Canadians that they're all very nice people. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> <I totally agree. laughs> you're carrying the flag well. <laughs> yeah, thank you. So besides the cows, were there any patients along the way that you ran into that were particularly stand out? During uh, residency in pediatrics, what I found is, which struck me, is that the humanity part of that, that Sometimes you actually make a mistake on a patient, but if you are with a family and with the parents and you're honest, you can actually really help them and help the patient. And these are the people that sometimes you stay in contact forever. That's the beauty of pediatrics because you can follow the children that become adults. And actually, I've been to marriages of some of my kids. It's, it's just amazing. I call them my kids. In, in pediatric oncology and hematology, it's actually very similar, isn't it? So... If you do acute care like medicine, uh, in, uh, emergency medicine, you see the patient once or twice. But if you do pediatric hematology oncology, and that's one of the reasons for me to choose that area, you stay with these patients sometimes for life. And 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 I have I have a privilege to be involved in kids who are adults now, but also with families who lost their kids and these families are unbelievable and and this changed my life all the time and 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 actually always start my talk including the one I gave yesterday with one patient to change the way I think about a disease but it started with compassionate and how this patient touched me and I think that's what we try to do when when we do what we call translational medicine take a case understand why this is happening and try to change things because we can't let these kids not be cured so changing the world one one patient at a time I, I believe so yeah so you know you are in the field of pediatric brain tumors neuro oncology and it's one of the most difficult and now has been declared statistically as the most common cause of death in children due to disease not just due to any kinds of cancer I believe so what that speaks to is it's it's a challenge there's probably a lot of reasons for that, whether the drugs don't get to the brain very well or it's a very <laughs> important organ and we can't, uh, you know, it's not like we can remove a limb or something. Can you speak to some of those challenges and what you think we've overcome and what you think we still have left to uh, conquer? Yeah, so I will first challenge the challenger. <laughs> so I do think that it's an amazing story, uh, actually, childhood brain tumors. And it's true that because it is a common tumor and still deadly, it's still statistically the highest rate of death among childhood cancer. But actually, childhood cancer is not one thing. Basketball and chess are sports, but it's not the same thing, isn't it? So even within brain tumors, we have subgroup of tumors, which, for example, we call low-grade glioma, that the real mission is to reduce therapy because we are doing well. And other types of therapy, uh, tumors which are more deadly, which our plan is actually to challenge that and to see what we can do. And, and I do think that we learn from each other and we see that advances done in another type of tumor can teach you about how to treat better the deadly brain tumors. And recently, as you guys know, we were able to actually learn even from cancer predisposition and to see which type of mutations which exist in the germline and affect many cancers can actually be used to treat the most malignant brain tumors in children, which are called glioblastoma. So 
it, it is a challenging area, but also very exciting area because in the last 20 years, maybe the biggest advancement in improvement in survival was brain tumors that was so low before. That's a great perspective. Uh, you, you mentioned the, the predisposition syndromes or cancer predisposition in general. And I know that's one of your major interests in, in your career. Can you, we've, we've spoken in these podcasts before a little bit about that in several different episodes, but I don't think we've spoken about it with respect to brain tumors specifically. Can you talk about some of, you know, what percentage of patients maybe have an inherited, what, actually, what inherited predisposition means to, some, to a layperson who may be listening to this and want to know what you're talking about and are they at risk? It's true because cancer predisposition has a word predisposition which is so difficult to understand. What are you guys talking about? And I think we know more about this also because of amazing advocates such as Angelina Jolie which is a movie star which made it sure that people understand more about something that they don't want to know about and are so afraid of. So the cancer predisposition means that there is a mutation that exists in all the cells in your body that makes you predisposed to get cancer. And that can be during childhood or during adulthood. And and in the past, we used to be very afraid of that and not talk about it. And and now we understand that if we know that early, we can do the amazing thing of finding a cancer very early and treat it, treat it better and with less toxic therapy, and even in rare cases, prevent the cancers, which will be a dream for all of us. So for cancer prevention is really what we want to do uh, as a dream for all of us. So so that started that interest and for me. And, and as usual, for everybody in the world and with wrong relation to each profession, you use your mentors, the people who, who taught you to do things in a good way. And my mentor, David Malkin, is one of the fathers of cancer predisposition, as I said, uh, these mutation that exists in every cells in childhood cancer and he opened my mind to a large group of patients who are actually children who can get cancers anywhere in the body and what is so interesting that once we know now what we know the largest group of cancers which actually have this germline predisposition so patients will have a risk for that is actually brain tumors it was discovered on other cancers, but actually the largest group in, is brain tumors. And we always want to get statistics, but it's not fair because, again, as I said before, there are some tumors that a hundred percent of the children uh, of the tumors will be because of cancer predisposition. Okay. And some uh, tumors, which it will be very rare. The most common childhood cancer is called acute leukemia or ALL. And that has rarely has anything to do with cancer predisposition. There's a specific type of uh, cancer which is called subependymal giant cell tumor. And the name has no meaning. But that has a 100% cancer predisposition to a syndrome called tuberosclerosis. And if you know that, you can change the way these kids are developing even because you can give them a pill and they can live better lives. And the cancer is actually responding to that. So these are a major part of pediatric brain tumors which we want to know. Yeah, so if someone has a cancer predisposition syndrome or you you identify that based on some genetic test, how do you watch for a cancer? Are they supposed to go to the doctor for a checkup every day of their lives? Or, you know, fantastic. I guess I'm asking you a bit about the Toronto Protocol as well. So fantastic. So again, leadership of people who devote their lives to this story. So we really want to see if we can find a cancer as early as we can because we know 
to find a little cancer is different than we find uh, metastatic and too late cancer. That little cancer can be treated with more success, but also with less toxic therapy, which is important for the little child when he becomes an adult. So I was privileged to be a part of the protocol that Dr. David Malkin and other people developed. And that was saying that every child that has a germline mutation, so every cell in the body has a mutation in a gene called P53, what we need to do is to perform several tests every year. And some tests is once a year, which is not that bad. So kids with diabetes get injection every day. This means an MRI once a year. It's not that bad. And initially when we did that, uh, I remember some of uh, his colleagues telling him that it's unethical. But family did not say that. Family said they want to do that because they want to find it early. And then 10 years later, we find that these individuals are still alive, even if they developed cancers, and they didn't need aggressive therapy. Sometimes it's only surgery. They didn't need chemotherapy or, most importantly, radiation, especially for brain tumors. This is important because when you get radiation, it will affect you throughout your life. And we see these kids now in university, and we see them, and it makes us so happy to see that. So... That can be implied for other cancer syndromes. And that what, what we did in the last few years, we did the same thing for other, other cancer predisposition syndromes, and we get the same results. And again, as I said, the most malignant brain tumors in childhood are called glioblastoma. Survival is extremely poor. And, and we have kids who we found a small glioblastoma, and they're in university now, 10 years after. That's great. So it's, it's a dream. You, you gave a very nice Grand Rounds talk yesterday about your research and um, talked a little bit about sort of the body's balance on sort of mutations and repair. I just thought for sort of the scientific community, if you could kind of describe and distinguish between the mismatch repair and the body's ability for that and sort of that hypermutation um, sort of biallelic mismatch repair that you talked about and sort of the differences there. So thank you so much for raising that important story. So again, the same story started with translational medicine that we started seeing kids who are dying from multiple cancers and we didn't know why. So we went back and we found the cause for that, which is they can't repair the DNA that is multiplied in each cell. So when each cell wants to divide, it needs to replicate the DNA to make one copy into two copies. When the cell does that, there is a machinery who does that, and we call that replication repair machinery that makes sure that there are no mistakes. It's like writing a book and having mistakes, somebody needs to edit that, isn't it? So when this editing does not exist, there are many, many mutations. And these kids have so many mutations that they get cancer in very, very early age. <coughs> so what we found first is that indeed, these tumors that happen at year five have more mutations in the tumor then all human cancers, even people who are 70 and have tumors with a lot of mutations, have less mutation than that. The beauty of all this process that we do as a team together is that it makes us think about things. And what we found that too many mutations is actually not good for the tumor, which is fantastic for us, isn't it? Because initially we all study that mutation is a bad thing. It's a bad thing for us because then cancer develops. But for that specific cancer cell, it's not good to have too many mutations, and that cancer cell cannot repair mistakes, so it gets more and more mistakes until that cancer cell dies. So we think it's what we call Achilles heel. This is the problem of this cancer, and in the last two years, we found several ways to actually use that to treat these cancers, and that makes the most malignant cancer maybe way more curable. 
the last thing about that is, please, we need to be broad. So our findings are not only for this rare cancer predisposition, because some other cancers, after you treat them with chemotherapy, can become also what we call hypermutant. So they'll belong to the same group and can get these new therapies. And many adult cancers that nobody was aware of also have the same mutations. So this little story about a childhood cancer predisposition can be a important for many, many, many people in the world. So that's our dream. So are you saying that sometimes with treatment and relapse, patients come back with a hypermutated type of cancer? Yes. So there is a big, so we call that the yin and yang of cancer genetics, because things which are true for patients who have mutations in every cell in the body can also be true for the cancer when it comes back. So if we find the concept, which is really, really good and strong, that can be applicable to a larger cohort of patients and cancers. For example, it's a known thing today in the world that we don't biopsy the cancer when it comes back. We think it's too late. It's not too late. If we start biopsying that, analyzing these tumors, and maybe finding that they have too many mutations, we can use that to treat the same way we treat our kids. Mm -hmm. So again, uh, if we talk to each other all the time, and we use each other's expertise, and we use the same concepts, we can change, I think, dramatically the way we treat cancer. So, so how far back do you see this sort of going? Do you see this eventually in the future becoming sort of a even a prenatal thing or, or, or kind of a, a thing where there's, you know, potentially a biomarker that can suggest that patients are, even before they're born, you know, so susceptible the, to hypermutation. You can do something about it even before you have to do a lot of the other screening and even pick up a cancer. I mean, do you see a future like that? So I think what you're alluding to, can we prevent cancer, mm -hmm. which will be the dream of everybody? So so I think that's a, an amazing point, and it's not necessarily to the syndrome I was talking to you right now. If we found a treatment which is good to a syndrome A, the question is, can we treat the, the patient before he develops the cancer and maybe prevent that cancer? And there are some clues in the world, including in humans and animal models, that this is the case. So that will mean that we need to find that patient when he is born. There are some syndromes today that we do blood tests on that every infant who is born in, in, in the Western Hemisphere just to find if they have this abnormality. It's mostly metabolic diseases, but we find that because we want to reverse that, isn't it? I'm not sure that in the near future we will not do that for cancer predisposition. So it's not that we find it only after the patient or the child develops cancer. We will find it when he is born. And then we hopefully want to give him a pill for half a year, mm -hmm. and then that may prevent cancer later. Evidence exists that this is not a pure speculation, but a dream that may come true soon. It will change the way we do medicine today. I mean, the biomarker we have now is family history. Right. So how often is the family history of cancer so dramatic that people are thinking of this? Or is it happen a lot as either a spontaneous new mutation or just not a high penetrance so that a person who's diagnosed with cancer might have a syndrome, but we don't realize it? I think that's a fantastic question, and I think we, we, I think we are seeing only the tip of the iceberg. We see only the people that we were aware to ask the right questions, isn't it? So we as physicians asked really deep questions. What is the family history of cancer in the grandmother and the uncles and aunts and stuff like that? So many times we don't do that because we want to treat the cancer itself, and that's a big problem. But even if we do that, 
we have now molecular testing and we sequence a lot of tumors routinely and we find that even without a family history one can have that cancer predisposition so we call that reverse genetics we're actually doing genetics on the tumor and finding something in the germline so combining the new tools that we have today and more awareness from all our community to ask the right questions we can find what is lying underneath the 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 ocean uh, level and see and that is important because i think it's okay that we didn't do it until now because we had no therapies but if we do have therapies we do want to find it early do you think all childhood cancer is arising from some predisposition <laughs> i i'm happy to think that not so it's not our <laughs> fault we have parents here i'm sure you need to know most of childhood cancer are either bad luck or maybe actually a, a result of toxic and exposures and other things that we are all trying to learn and to be better at. Uh, but it's uh, uh, speculated by some of my mentors that up to 20% of, of cancers will be due to a cancer predisposition. We will need to find more in the future. What What is really important to say that again, this is like sports. It's not the same. In some specific tumors, it's going to be 100%. And in some tumors, it has nothing to do with that. And this will help us too, isn't it? Because if you know, if you have a tumor called ependymoma, the chance that it's because of any genetic event is really low. Mm -hmm. And if it's a tumor in the optic nerve, it's probably going to be due to a mutation in a gene called NF1 in the germline. So it depends which tumor. So for all those sort of young researchers out there, or even seasoned researchers, what path do you think or what approach do you feel like they should? Sorry to interrupt, but it looks like we have a new host uh, joining us. Uh, visitor. A visitor, <laughs> uh, Dr. Jonathan Finley. Welcome. Thank you. You were the subject of a podcast not too long ago, maybe, what, two years ago, I think mm -hmm. we did one, uh, with you as your director of our pediatric neuro-oncology program here at Nationwide Children's Hospital. And thank you for, for stepping in as well for to join the conversation. We were just kind of getting into sort of for the young researchers in out there listening, what approach do you think they should go about now taking these discoveries about the genetics and the mutations and stuff and actually getting it to where it can make a clinical impact for the patients and how to translate that, translate that into the clinical world? Okay, so, so what you're touching is what we call translational medicine, which is a very difficult area to translate basic research to really what matters to patients. And and sometimes it doesn't have to be uh, basic research. It can be an idea. It can be observation that you see in one patient, which actually Jonathan Finley is, is a world leader at, and take that and change that into something that we translate to many, many other children. I think we need to know that this road is difficult. And the people who are successful are the people who are persistent and believe in what they do. It's never... Uh, three months and then you win. It's always five to ten years. But I've never seen somebody who's persistent and didn't succeed. Am I right? I think what I see here, and I, th I see it with Jonathan's uh, leadership in, in, in clinical trials, very brave one in young children, is that if you're persistent and you know what you're doing, even years of frustration translate at the end to success, and it's more impactful to the world than people who do a study once and then go to do something else exciting. Translational medicine is not about your own ego and fame. For fame, don't do translational medicine. It's not good for you. It's good for the patients. <laughs> but if you know what you want to do and you care about it, 
it's gonna be a, in 20 years you'll be a happy person because you'll see sometimes even children who become adults but you'll see the results of how your impact changes the way doctors thinks patient do things and sometimes rarely new drugs coming so it's really a long process and don't be intimidated and take your time dr finley do you concur i completely <laughs> and utterly concur with his the sentiment Sometimes it becomes a matter of rather than knowing what you're doing but believing in what you're doing, uh, the goal is testing a hypothesis, uh, which sometimes is based on belief rather than knowledge. The hypothesis hopefully will produce the knowledge and the knowing or affirm that, that uh, knowledge and knowing. But you're absolutely right. First of all, one has to gauge these things over over. Five, ten years, try 25 years uh, for, for some of these things. Uh, you just have to believe it's you're doing the right thing for your patients. And sometimes the best way to be reassured that you're doing the right thing, sadly, is by looking around and seeing what's not being done elsewhere. That, that you know, every that others are sadly, for all kinds of reasons, treading water and not going anywhere. And, and that is as much an incentive and a drive because, as you said, it's not about our egos. It's about our patients and it's about our children. How much of uh, people treading water is due to regulations? Sadly, uh, unfortunately, that has become a much bigger problem than it ever was. Uh, part of it is unavoidable. Part of it was essential. 25, 30 years ago when I started in the national cooperative groups, you know, we were able to get away with things that we probably shouldn't have been, no, not probably, definitely shouldn't have been allowed to get away with, both in the cooperative group level and in the institutional level. Regulation at that level to ensure uh, privacy, to ensure uh, appropriate ethical conduct of clinical trials is essential. Sadly, it's gotten to the point where I think many of us would agree that it's gone too far the other extreme so that regulation is now obfuscating the process, the speed of which we get clinical trials to be opened uh, and conduct them. It is a balance, though, because it's a balance. You, there have been atrocities, of course, in the past in medical research, so there needs to be some caps and containment. But The other the problem, of course, there. is that because of all these regulatory issues, understandably, but the pro the cost, the economic cost mm -hmm. of conducting such trials has become staggering. Maybe Yuri could speak to the difference between Canadian systems and U.S. in terms of these kinds of regulations or being able to do things for your patients. So I would like to go back, if that's okay, to your question and to say that because it relates to what we are talking about now. So you want to survive as a clinician or a scientist and not just to say I'm I'm going to go through 25 years even if nothing will happen. So the way to do it is to build what I call a program. So if you take the cancer predisposition that I'm being involved in, if I just focus on a drug, if that doesn't work, then there is nothing to go to. But if you focus on surveillance and finding early things, developing molecular things that will change the way we think, in parallel helping patients in many countries, including developing countries, and new therapies, it's always that one works and the other doesn't. So that one so makes you survive for two years, and then, oh, suddenly the ones that didn't work for two years actually works. And then why is that important? Because it's the same with fighting the whole community of of, of safety, which is very important, but it's overwhelming. So, for example, I'm here now. 
and I'm excited to see how the OSU team and, 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 and children's is able to actually be lean enough to go with these problems and, and work faster than in Canada. So I do think that if I care about patients, I think some of the solutions will be that the basic discoveries will be done one place, but maybe the best place to run the next clinical trial is here. We don't care, isn't it? It will run here. Maybe for another specific clinical trial that you want to do with other countries, uh, the USA is not the best thing that we can run it from Toronto. So once we have this team approach and actually we, we talk to each other a lot and that's the beauty, including, by the way, this Toronto protocol that we discussed before was led by uh, uh, um, Jonathan Finley and David Malkin because it doesn't matter where you do it, the matter is the product. So I do think that if we work together and we not just get mad about the system but try to fix each system separately to work on a goal, it's actually we can help a little bit here. So your <laughs> career development messages are teamwork, team science, but also a broad pro- portfolio. Sorry. Like for your own safety. Absolutely right. It's the old adage, don't put your eggs all in one basket. Yes. You've got to, your portfolio, and I'm talking about on an individual as well as on a programmatic level, has to be diversified in order to survive. Of course, on an individual level, you also risk spreading yourself too thin, to use another old you're, adage. You're, yes, but the, yes, it's, it's got to be a balance. And it's focused, right of balance. course. So what do you think is sort of the hottest thing coming? Uh, what are you looking forward to? And we're going to wrap up here because we're getting past a half an hour. But what, what's, what are you looking forward in the next maybe five years for new developments or new exciting things in, in pediatric brain cancer or, or inherited predispositions involved? We can't put them together, as we said before. So in area of cancer predisposition syndromes, we can be brave today. We talked about early, early, early detection that we didn't do before because now we can surveillance. So the braver we are and the braver we start interventions, which we call preventive, which are very difficult to go through the legislation. But once you start doing that, it helps the legislation. That's the dream. We are getting there. We need leaders to agree to work together and do it from very young age. That's plan one. For this lonesome, terrible brain tumors that we don't know the cure yet, I do think that some of the new therapies that we have, it's not only that they offer a chance, they also offer a different approach because we are used to chemotherapy and radiation that either they work or they don't. We were sitting in a tele, in a conference today with Jonathan Finley and, and, and colleagues, and we see that some diseases that everybody used to die in a year, we made them into a chronic disease. That's a huge success. So we shouldn't be broad, uh, just stuck with the old fashion. If this fails, it's over, but start using immune therapy, combined therapy, targeted therapy to get to a level that what you actually do is say, okay, now we're alive two years. Let's think now. And it may change the way we think because we may see improvement in other aspects, quality of life and other things which lead us to different therapies. So I think we are there. Your message is to encourage people to still go into this field? <laughs> so <laughs> There's I... no shortages of questions to be answered and problems That's to true. be solved for but our patients. For hematology-oncology, I think I said that in the beginning, it's not a profession, it's way of life. Yeah. If you take that as, I want to go home at five and forget about everything, you're in the wrong profession. We all People concur. need to understand mm-hmm. that. Yes. We all okay. concur, yes. Well, thank you for being here and, thank you, and having these discussions. It's terrific. Thank and you. Thanks, Robin, for being here. Thank you, Jonathan, for thank joining you. us. 
And thanks to this team at Solving Kids Cancer, a nonprofit charity dedicated to improving survival through creating no novel treatment options for children. The team includes Donna Ludwinski, our executive producer, and Cindy Campbell, director of communications. And also thanks to Scott Kennedy and John London, the founding co-directors of Solving Kids Cancer. Remember, the more we learn, communicate, share ideas, and work together, the faster we'll reach the day when all childhood cancer is preventable or curable. As always, keep up the fight, and thanks for listening to this week's Pediatric Oncology.